author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald <laughs> Jeffries, separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., <laughs> this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. That's a, the volume on that's a little low today. Hopefully everybody heard that okay out there. This is Donald Jeffries here with you, coming to you just as the guy says, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., Every Friday at this time, we come here and we talk about uh, controversial things. We get together our group of thought criminals, thought criminals of the world unite. And I have a great guest today, somebody I've been trying to get on the show for a while. And lots of people, ironically, uh, during the show last week, I had two different people in the chat room who brought um, his name up independently. And I said, well, he's going to be on the show next week. So they were very overjoyed to, <laughs> to hear that. Joseph P. Farrell is an author and he's got... You know, I've got my ninth book coming out here, but I, you know, I must have dropped in the bucket compared to him. I mean, he's, I can't even count how many books he has, but uh, he's just a prolific author. He writes about various things. Uh, he, he was a, a degree from Oxford. You know, I'm a community college dropout, so I'm going to hold my own in the conversation here. <laughs> but uh, he's, uh, he combines alternative history with science, uh, just really, really all kinds of stuff we could talk about. I want to talk a lot about uh, Joe McCarthy. Those of you who've read my book, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776-1963, know that uh, I think he's been treated unfairly, but uh, uh, Joe Farrell has done you know, a lot of work on him. So, Joseph Farrell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Don. Well, it, it's it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, again, lots of people uh, have been demanding you. So here you are. So <laughs> we... Uh, I don't know where we can start. First of all, how, how do you, you have a degree from Oxford. So, I mean, I, I know what I am. I've always been a rabble rouser and a radical. I dropped that at community college. So I, I didn't really go through the system to be uh, uh, radicalized against it. Uh, but you're, you know, you have a degree from Oxford. How, how do you come to be uh, going down these rabbit holes and uh, basically uh, becoming a, a dissenter? from the deep state as it were, how did, did you, did you start out on that path or was it gradual? Did you, did you see a lot of corruption and stuff and you realize, wow. Well, I, I, it's hard to explain. Um, the Oxford business, I, I went there to get out of the American quackademic system and get into a system where I would be able to do my, my PhD research on what I wanted to do it on. And do it without the indoctrination that that I had attempted two separate PhD programs in America, and this is back in the 1980s. And I thought this is this is nothing for me. I, you know, it was already already becoming rotten at that point. So I went to Oxford, where where they would leave me alone to do what I wanted to do, which I did. But as far as the interest in in uh, what I've been writing books about, I've always been. Um, I've always been kind of a maverick in in my life, uh, and and what really did it for me. I was six years old. I was homesick from school on the Friday that President Kennedy was assassinated. So I literally watched uh, on television, and you know, watched the bulletins come in during that that day, and then later the whole week. 
uh, that weekend. And, you know, I was watching television that Sunday when, when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And as a six-year-old boy, I, I just knew this is, this is all wrong. And what they're telling us is all wrong. And then, you know, a year or so later, <laughs> when mm. when Lyndon Johnson had the Warren Commission report <laughs> report published, <laughs> uh, most people are not aware of this, but the, all the newspapers around the country and all the big magazines excerpted the report and tried to summarize it. Sure. So our local newspaper, of course, summarized the the report itself and there was this diagram of the magic bullet you know president kennedy and governor <laughs> conley and this somersaulting flip-flopping bullet to, you know to, right. doing all of these wonderful <laughs> wonderful very non-ballistic things <laughs> and you know i'm looking at we're at the dinner table and i'm seven years old and i'm looking at this cartoon <laughs> in the paper <laughs> trying to explain why the president was dead. And I just looked at my dad and I said, bullets don't do that. <laughs> and well, you were dad, like, you were like me. I, I wasn't a skeptic. And I, I think we're the same age. I was seven as well. And I, yeah. I, uh, I started out that's, this is my wheelhouse issue. You know, I, I was right. a, as a teenager, as a volunteer for Mark Lane's group. So oh, we can wow. talk about this. All, we, we can talk about this all day. And it's, uh, <laughs> You know, and certainly it's in the news now with Paul Landis, the Secret Service right. agent, coming out right. and claiming. But go ahead. I so that this you were skeptical at, your, at seven years old already. So. Well, yeah, I've I've been <laughs> you know I've been skeptical of every government explanation of everything since then. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> this became a career. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that, and we already have people. There's people obviously familiar with your work if you look on screen there. Uh, Ray-Ban says the feral phenomenon has made heavy use of arguments yep. concerning the Western obsession with the principle of simplicity in yep. thinking about matters divine. And so he has yep. to, he, he knows you, it seems like. Well, it, it, it seems, it seems like he's referring to some of my very early academic theological works, which incidentally, I've always regarded as part of the whole total product. I think the same way in, in all of my books, but yeah. Yeah, I would, I would, I would characterize those as as accurate summaries. Anyway, oh, cool. Well, you have people here who've read you, so obviously, so you, you were skeptical, of JFK. In my case, oh, yeah. I was, and, and I was too. It's and we, I was from a Catholic family, so I heard uh, my father and all the relatives. Nobody believed that Oswald did it, so I was steeped right. in that from the very beginning. And they mostly thought LBJ did it because they hated Johnson, and uh, so I was steeped on. It wasn't until as a teenager I started reading. Rush to Judgment and the other early mm -hmm. works, Whitewash and all those. And then, you know, was volunteering for Mark Lane that I, that I started down these paths and it led me to other things. But the JFK assassination was my first one. So you, you, uh, were you, then you became a, a teenager looking into these things? I mean, how did you, uh, when you were a young man, did you uh, look at October Surprise and Iran Contra and all that? And then the Bill Clinton era, which was conspiracy central is what I well, call it. <laughs> well, the two things that did it for me, my father was an engineer and they would play cards every Friday night with an engineer friend of his. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, the, the engineer that they played cards with, he was the engineer for the local CBS uh, television affiliate. 
And this guy was just super smart. He hand built the transmitter for the, for the television <laughs> station. You know, one of these nerdy guys. Mm -hmm. But um, they they often would have interesting discussions as they were playing cards. And and one of the things they discussed one night that just stuck in my memory was was the Great Pyramid and how over engineered it was. So that became a subject of of fascination for me. And I eventually published. Uh, books about it. The other fascination for me, and this probably is where you want to take the discussion. Um, in junior high and high school, I grew up in South Dakota. And as a boy, our senior senator was Senator Carl Munt. And if anybody in the audience is familiar with, with the story yeah. of Senator McCarthy, Carl Munt was one of the members of McCarthy's committee, the Committee on Government Operations. And it was Senator Munt that actually chaired the Army McCarthy hearings because McCarthy himself, as one of the subjects under investigation in those hearings, could not chair the hearings. So he surrendered the gavel of, of the chair to Senator Munt, and it was Senator Munt that, that chaired the hearings. Uh, Munt is, if you look at the of the old films of the hearing, Senator Munt is the bald guy in the chair that's usually smoking a pipe. Hmm. But um, Senator Munt was, was very pro-McCarthy. Carl Munt got his start in Congress with Richard Nixon, <laughs> incidentally, <laughs> as the South Dakota representative. And it was Senator Munt, along with Richard Nixon, that was one of the three major grillers of Alger Hiss before the House on American Activities Committee. So again, you know, Munt is coming out of this post-war um, anti-New Deal, anti-communist, anti-security threat uh, milieu that becomes part of what I call the committee era. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, Senator Munt, um, when I was a boy, he made sure that the libraries around Sioux Falls and the other major towns in eastern South Dakota would have pro-McCarthy books. <laughs> you know, and I go they off. They had them? They had, yes, they actually did. It was unusual because uh, Senator, Senator Munt was one of the 22 senators who did not vote to censure Senator McCarthy when, when that vote came up in the Senate in 1954. So Senator Munt, uh, you know, he was a popular senator. McCarthy never had quite the bad name in that part of South Dakota and therefore in our house that uh, that he did in the rest of the country. And I read these. Yeah, the Smith-Munt Act. Again, that's yeah. the same Senator Munt. Um, so I, you know, I grew up not hating McCarthy. And I read some of these books that he had posted in the libraries. So, you know, I, I early on was of the opinion that, that uh, there's, there's much more to this story and they're not telling me. Mm -hmm. uh, it, took, it took several decades for me to, to be able to follow up that story, but I did. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, and that's what fascinates me. And, and the book we're talking about is uh, McCarthy, Monmouth, and the Deep State. Yep. And uh, I, I, you know, excerpted liberally from that book, as you know, and Peter Sikash, who I hope is going to be on the show. He had some car issues, but he's, he is really, uh, 
more of an expert in this era, area than I am. But I, I was always, I understood McCarthy was uh, villainized irrationally. And of course, I was oh, yeah. always looking at his death. I mean, the guy's 48 years old. He goes into uh -huh. Bethesda Naval Hospital, which is the last place you want to go <laughs> if, you're, if you're state. And uh, he doesn't come out. He's dead three days later from a yeah. knee problem and there's no <laughs> autopsy. So, you know, Drew Pearson says, oh, he's an alcoholic. He died. And that's what I was talking to my sister today about that. And says, well, he died of alcoholism, didn't he? I said, oh, yeah, that's probably what you heard if you heard anything about it. So the real story of McCarthy is what, especially in this book, he was looking into things like UFOs and kind of mm -hmm. hinting around Roswell. Mm -hmm. He was the first conspiracy theorist as far, or one of the first that I can see in Pearl Harbor, saying Pearl Harbor was a psyop, that Roosevelt had advanced knowledge. Oh, boy. Um, you're opening quite a can of worms. <laughs> That's what I do, Joe. I, I open cans of worms on every one of these shows. <laughs> well, let's let's you're raising three issues. His death, um, Pearl yeah. Harbor, and the UFO Roswell issue. So let's take those in that order. First yes. of all, his death. Um you're correct. He checks himself into Bethesda Naval Hospital, ostensibly because he's experiencing knee pain from an old war wound. Um, and the official story of his death is hepatitis. When he checks himself into the hospital, they're writing down the complaint as some sort of neuralgia or neuropathy. I don't remember exactly what the term is, but it has nothing to do with hepatitis. And once he's checked into the hospital, this is the part that I find incredibly fishy. It has that uh, eau de malodeur to it <laughs> <laughs> because McCarthy was put into an oxygen tent for something that did not even require an oxygen tent. While he's in the oxygen tent, Guess who stops by to visit him, who had just voted against him to censure him in the Senate? Miller well, Tidings? Joe no, no Miller, Miller Tidings lost that election. He, yeah. he lost that whole tussle with McCarthy big time, yeah. and the voters in Maryland threw him out. But uh, no, it was Senator Prescott Bush. Mm -hmm. oh. And, oh, isn't that nice for him to yeah. drop by? Yeah. And McCarthy fought so much of it, he he telephoned Bush's office and left a message saying how much he appreciated that Senator Bush would come by and visit him in the <laughs> hospital. And I'm thinking, no, Senator Bush is there to make sure the job is done and this guy is going <laughs> yes. to be, you know, that's, the, you know, people who know me know that I have no love lost for the Bush family. He won't be coming anyway, out. Good to see you, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, McCarthy McCarthy en does end up dying, and it's interesting, you know, one of the speculations out there, and I put it in the book, is that he may have been killed by a very common cleaning chemical that I mean, can be aerosolized. Anybody listening to this show? Yeah, and, okay. and you know, that would the oxygen tent, which he did not need, would have been a perfect vehicle to get rid of the guy. And it the, the chemical would have... Uh, mimic the symptoms of, of hepatitis, which is actually what was re reported on his death certificate. Then, after the death, <laughs> after the death, they give McCarthy, and this just floors me, they give McCarthy a full state funeral. 
mm-hmm. on the floor of the Senate with his casket in the well of the Senate. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't even do that for Feinstein. <laughs> they got her out of there as fast as they could. Yeah. Uh, but no, McCarthy, for some reason, you know, after all of these senators have just voted to censure him and they they give him this full state funeral. Uh, Richard Nixon's in attendance. The Speaker of the House is in attendance. Of course, Rory Cohn is in attendance. Mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover. You know, everybody is there. And I'm thinking, okay, well, this is their way of saying, we're sorry we had to do this to you, Joe. Off you go. You know? <laughs> so that's yeah. the first thing. His death is very mysterious. The, the other thing that McCarthy does is on the floor of the Senate, in, and we're coming to the Pearl Harbor bit here. Yeah, that's why I put that up there. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that he does is in 1951, on the floor of the Senate, uh, and this, of course, is after his famous Wheeling, West Virginia speech. This is after his big tussle with Millard Tidings. He gets on the floor of the Senate and goes over the career of General Marshall. And basically what he he does in the the speech is he points out several truths. First of all, that Marshall's uh, pre-generalship military record was something less than stellar. Uh, General MacArthur did not want to him. Uh, him promoted and the rest of the uh, army general staff did not want him promoted. And yet FDR picks him to be promoted over everybody else to become the, the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff effectively back then. So the question that McCarthy begins to ask is, well, why does FDR do this? And I'm, again, I'm going to have to go around Harvey's barn so that people can appreciate what a tough politician Senator McCarthy could be. Uh, if you thought you had him in your his in the crosshairs, he would double down and and reveal the cards that he's not played yet. <laughs> but, and he was a poker player, you know. So this was this was second nature to him. But anyway, uh, the other thing that he did in this speech is he questioned the military wisdom of having that second Allied invasion of France in August of 1944 that took place on the Mediterranean coast of France and basically made the the Languedoc region of, of southern France its target. Now, at the time that Marshall approved that invasion, it was called Operation Anvil, the, the German forces inside of France are already in full retreat. So it was, from any military point of view, a purely unnecessary invasion. And General Clark, the, the, Allied, uh, the American commander of Allied forces in Italy, was advocating that they take all of those forces and push into the Balkans, which would have, of course absolutely ended the war earlier. It would have kept Soviet Russia out of the Balkans and so on and so forth. The post-war world would have looked very different. So McCarthy is raising the specter by circumstantial evidence. 
that Marshall was actually serving the best interests of the Soviet Union. That was the speech in 1951. In the second McCarthy book that, that was the follow-up to the one that you mentioned earlier, I pointed out something really interesting. During the height of the Army McCarthy hearings in 1954, McCarthy publishes that speech in a book called America's Retreat from Victory. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> in, in the book, you know, this, this is typical McCarthy. You know, the Army and Eisenhower think that they've got McCarthy in the crosshairs and they're going to get rid of this guy once and for all. So he publishes the book and he releases more information in the book that he did not release in the 1951 version of the speech, but which he surely knew in 1951. He held this one back. And that is that Marshall's story of where he was on the day of Pearl Harbor, he was out riding his horse, according to Marshall, Mm -hmm. which is why he could not be reached, you know. Which, of course, is is patent nonsense, as anybody who's lived in or near the swamp <laughs> would yeah. know. But but McCarthy, in the in the published book version of his speech, points out that an American author whose last name is Upton, I forget what his what his uh, proper names are, wrote a book about the the Soviet ambassador to the United States, the new Soviet ambassador that was posted by Stalin in 1941. And the ambassador's name was Litvinov. And in this book about Ambassador Litvinov, this author mentions the fact that when Litvinov landed in Washington, D.C. to take up his residence, the people meeting him were let were not the Soviet ambassadorial staff. It was not an official delegation from the country. It was General Marshall. And so McCarthy, you know, McCarthy is is doing what he he typically does. He's sending a signal to the army that okay, here we have a public record but little known book at stating a as a matter of fact that marshall is meeting the soviet ambassador when marshall himself says he was riding his horse we have here what we lawyers call a discrepancy (laughs) i'm the chairman of the government operations committee and therefore i have subpoena power this is the other part of the message that the boys in the pentagon are reading very clearly trust me (laughs) And if if this little fracas with the Army McCarthy hearings, which is going nowhere at this point, doesn't wind up, and I remain in the Senate in charge of this committee, I'm going to subpoena the author, I'm going to subpoena all of his sources, and then I'm going to subpoena General Marshall, and we're going to get down to the bottom of this. And trust me, no one in the swamp wants to go anywhere near that story because it's a rather damning story, as everyone knows. There, there was all sorts of foreknowledge on the part of, of the Roosevelt administration. There had been, by that point in history, a famous book published that fairly well documented that there was foreknowledge and a, 
a, a an intentional withholding of information from Admiral Kimmel and from uh, General Short in Hawaii. So, you know, again, what McCarthy is threatening is we can open up the whole the whole Pearl Harbor can of worms again. And this time we're going to involve a Roosevelt appointee to the to the chairmanship of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So, you know, he McCarthy was uh, nobody's fool when it came to when it came to uh, playing heavy duty politics. The final thing, the final thing that you and I'm sorry to keep going on and on here. No, but, keep going, please. Uh, the final thing that you mentioned was was the UFO matter. Yeah, uh, this is where I think the story is extremely interesting because all of those decades, Don, I had tried to find <clears throat> the transcripts of McCarthy's committee. And until Stanton Evans came out with his book, Blacklisted by History, we simply did not know what happened to those transcripts. And indeed, we didn't even know where all the voluminous files that Senator McCarthy kept personally for himself, in addition to the files of the committee, we had no idea where all that material was. It had completely vanished. Like, like J. Edgar Hoover's files, they're gone. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it turned out that Stanton Evans, um, Stanton Evans, published his book and mentioned the fact that that McCarthy somehow had had given copies or seen that copies got to the conservative journalist Ralph de Toledano, and de Toledano had left them in turn to Stanton Evans, who used them for his book, and then you know in in to me, the most colossal mistake made in this saga, Stanton Evans, on, on his death, willed them to the Library of Congress, where, of course, they will disappear and never be seen again. <laughs> um, but there was enough information in the Stanton Evans book to indicate that there was a lot more going on than, than had met the, the eye before. So I started looking for the transcripts of the committee hearings. And I, I kept getting nowhere until finally, and I don't I can't even remember how I how I discovered this. Finally, I ran across on Amazon the transcripts for McCarthy's hearings on the operations of the US Army at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey. And I sent off for these things, Don, and they they amounted to about Two to three thousand pages worth of, of transcript material on a CD. Yeah, and I sat down, and the first thing that that literally flipped me out was that the transcripts had been classified by the Senate for fifty years, and they had only been declassified in the year 2003 when Senator Lieberman of Connecticut was the chairman of that committee. Right. And the reason that they gave for declassifying the, the transcripts at that point was all of the principals are dead now, so there's no reason to keep them classified. So I start reading these things, Don. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I can guarantee you, and I, I put copious amounts of the transcripts 
quotations from them in the book. I can guarantee you that the reason that they were kept classified for that long had nothing whatsoever to do with anyone being alive or dead. Because over and over in the transcripts, Senator McCarthy or Roy Cohn or other members of the committee are constantly <clears throat> dropping the date July 1947. Yeah. And they're constantly digging around in the radar files of Fort Monmouth, which was doing all of our top secret radar research at the time. And I'm thinking, and on top of all of this, if you're not thinking Roswell already, on top of all this, in the middle of examining what happened to some missing top secret documents that were about whatever was going on down in Mexico, the, the Monmouth people say, well, they were all the Air Force is doing, and it had something to do with Blue Book. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, oh, oh, that's why they're after McCarthy. Because he's poking around, and all of a sudden he's he's onto radar. He's onto the subject of UFOs. All of a sudden he's talking about missing documents, trying to find out where they got to, and and the army is saying, well, the air force did this because it has something to do with blue book. So we're dealing with the UFO, and this this was, <laughs> you know, Senator McCarthy <laughs> is the last name that you would expect. To be talking about yeah. UFOs. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, that's, what, that's what I found just because, I mean, he's, let's, you know, and the thing about it, just, and you obviously know this, but, and so with my audience, but I, I just resent it so much when his name is, even if you accepted that he was a bad guy or whatever, uh, first of all, to, to say that he was, he was not associated with the House on American Activities Committee because no, he, he wasn't not. in the House. Right. So he, he he didn't call Hollywood people before him and blacklist no, them and all. So why is he he was investigating army corruption? Right. He was he was investigating uh you know things that uh to me should have seemed important to people but he it's yes. amazing how they were able to convert this and the public is still so stupid. Yes. That when you try to tell them you know he, obviously the House on American Activities Committee and nobody knows uh, Parnell's name Right, the guy was a chair. That's the guy right. who maybe ought to call a Parnellism or whatever. But, right. <laughs> but right. it's it's incredible, isn't it? and and I, you know, as a as a Kennedy, I you know, I still I admire the Kennedys. Uh, Forrestal was friends with the Kennedy family. Right. He was he was friends with the old man Joe Kennedy. He dated one of the Kennedy daughters. He was the godfather of uh, right. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Although now they're kind of trying to distance themselves from it, but uh, you know, to me, he had the right friends. The right enemies, and I'm sure you know James Forrestal. He and James right. Forrestal were buddies, and yes, Forrestal was pushed out of a window, I think, at Bethesda Naval Hospital yep. before McCarthy got yep. there. And he didn't he didn't McCarthy write a book, The Strange Death of Forrestal? He wrote about it, right? Didn't he? Yes, claim he, he, he he did. And and the the interesting thing here about McCarthy and Forrestal, uh, and this is this is a a not well known aspect of, of Senator McCarthy's career and his connections. Um, briefly put, McCarthy claimed in 1952 that what got him started on his anti-communist security threat crusade was that he had had dinner with Secretary Forrestal when he was just a freshman junior senator and had first arrived in Washington, and this was something that Forrestal mentioned was a concern. 
Roy Cohn's version of the story is that McCarthy was approached by three representatives of the military who presented him a list of security uh, threats within the Pentagon and within the State Department. This was the Lee list that, that McCarthy was using at Wheeling. Um, and they, they asked him if he would basically make this his issue and bring it up on the floor of the Senate with subpoena power to investigate. And McCarthy called them back after looking at their material, according to Cohn, and said, uh, okay, I'm sold. Now, the interesting thing about the story that, that Roy Cohn presents is that these three men, we don't know who they are, so I speculate that they were three men that were representatives of each of the service branches of the military and that they had something to do with Secretary Forrestal because this would have been exactly the sort of thing that Forrestal would, was interested in, and it's exactly the sort of thing that Forrestal was claiming prior to his death. He was claiming that he was being shadowed, followed, and so on and so forth. And, of course, Forrestal is connected to the whole UFO matter as well at the time via the Magic 12 documents. So my, my hypothesis is that, that McCarthy was on the short list of people to be approached in the Senate because of his background in law, because of his own military experience during the war, because he knew certain people in Wisconsin, because he had successfully primaried Robert LaFollette out of his Senate seat. And the LaFollette connection is another huge Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. But that McCarthy, if you look at the way he operates, particularly in the transcripts that I reproduce in, in the book, what you see him doing is he's clearly getting information from somewhere that is steering his questions. So what I'm hypothesizing is that the Venona transcripts themselves, the whole U.S. Army signals intelligence operation during World War II to listen into Soviet traffic, which was incidentally under the direction of the FBI and therefore J. Edgar Hoover, that they are funneling the information that they get from the Venona transcripts through Hoover to McCarthy. And McCarthy is, can use the information to ask questions, but he cannot reveal the information, and he therefore cannot endanger the operation. This is what I think is going on through all of this Army McCarthy stuff. When he starts out at Monmouth, it's clear that he's looking for the security risk, but bang, he keeps mentioning July of 1947, and he keeps bumping up against the whole UFO thing, which at that time is so highly classified that the Army realizes they've got a problem. They've got to shut this guy down by hook or crook. And they determined to do that using Roy Cohn. So I, what I'm suggesting here is that there is a huge nexus of 
influence and power surrounding Senator McCarthy that is directly tied to Secretary Forrestal, that is directly tied to the Kennedys, that is directly tied to J. Edgar Hoover, and their attempt to shut down this Soviet apparatus inside the United States. And it just so happens that all of this overlaps with the UFO problem. So, you know, McCarthy is walking a minefield. I think it's to his credit that he was able to walk in that field for so long and survive as long as he did. Well, just look at what happened, all the people you're yeah. talking about. Uh, you, you see what yeah. happened to the, the Kennedys, and I yes. mean Kennedys, plural. There's, there's, right. there's plenty of them that uh, died right. unnaturally and uh, wasn't just John and Robert. And uh, right. you have Forrestal, who died in Bethesda Naval Hospital right. before McCarthy, and then you have Forrestal at Bethesda Naval Hospital. Uh, McCarthy at Bethesda Naval Hospital, and of course the the worst autopsy in the history of the world yeah. was done at Bethesda for JFK. So it's so, right. so not the place you want to go. So it seems like no. these were, and 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 I think that uh, didn't didn't Forrestal uh, tour tour Europe post war Europe with young yes. JFK. I mean, yes, he did. These people were you know very. Uh, so th these are the kind of people I I think of them as the good guys as to whatever extent they're yeah. be good guys, but. Uh, so McCarthy, you know, is treated. And I, in my in my book, Crimes and Cover Ups, I talk about just the horrible, uh, you know, uh, obituaries and, and reports of his death, where they were just, it was so. I can imagine if like Trump died, you'd see that kind of thing now. You right, know, be like right. cheerleading and you know people going crazy and ecstatic. It was a little bit of that. Do you do you get a sense? I mean, until Trump came along, McCarthy was maybe you know, of course, Hitler was not in this country, but. I think probably the most demonized American politician before oh, Trump. Easily. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I write about that in the book as well, that, that Senator McCarthy is, uh, he is more unpopular than, and this, this is not even my observation. Uh, this is observation of a McCarthy scholar. McCarthy is more unpopular than Aaron Burr, George Wallace, and Richard Nixon. Yeah. And and McCarthy did not shoot anybody. Yeah. He did not burgle the opposing party's headquarters during mm -hmm. a during an election campaign. And he did not uh he did not sell uranium to Russia. He did not stand on the steps of a university denying black students. And in other words, these other people are are vilified for actions that they actually took or were associated with or blamed for rightly or wrongly mccarthy did none of these things in fact if you look at if you if you if you are like me and you've tried to get transcripts of his committee hearings most of them were held in executive session because mccarthy insisted that their rights not be violated so he would take things behind executive session most of the time. So this idea that he's on the floor of the Senate ruthlessly smearing people in public using senatorial immunity, yeah. that's not true. Well, it and, it, and he, he, it gets mixed up with, I mean, the House on American yes. Activities Committee, really. I mean, just the idea, I, I don't know about you, but... I object to the term "house on un-American un activities." What is an un-American activity? Activity, really, in terms right? Of civil liberties. So right. that's completely different. McCarthy was going after powerful people. He wasn't going yes. after little guy. He was going after the army, as, as White Wolf yes. puts on the screen. He was threatening to subpoena General right. Henry Ryan. He was he was criticizing George Marshall, one of the most right. you know cr uh, 
as you said, he wrote the book about him where he just he just tore into him. And so right. he was going after very powerful people. And the idea that he was uh, ruining lives, when in fact, if any lives were ruined, it was the House Un-American Activities Committee that did it. Right. it wasn't McCarthy. That was doing it. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's just so unfair. And this guy, uh, he uh, and just the fact that he died the way he did. I mean, that should tell you something. And, and the fact that there was no autopsy. Done, I mean, that the or, whole thing is fishy. And again, I think I think in terms of, of the political narrative and culture, the thing that was threatening about McCarthy more than anything else was he was a cultural threat to the narrative of St. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, that really was what he was perceived as threatening. Yes. yes. And um, I, you know, rightly so, you know, because I do think there is so much in, in the record of the of the Roosevelt regime oh. that needs to be challenged. Yes, yes. And, I... and this, this halo ripped from around his head. And McCarthy was not, you know, <laughs> McCarthy was McCarthy. Well, and, and White White Wolf must have read my mind because I was going to go into this. Uh, uh -huh. He would love to hear McCarthy being uh, bring up uh, Operation Gold. Oh. Does Joe know anything about Yash? I mean, I mean, I, I was I'm writing on Substack today about our history yeah. of theft uh, of of thieving, and this is a case of that where we apparently McCarthy was looking into uh, did did we through Roosevelt 1934 an agreement did we somehow steal 100 billion dollars worth of gold from the Chinese? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, look, look, that. look. Let me let me let me put it to you this way: I do not talk about this in the book. However. McCarthy was one of those people who was constantly concerned, and he raised this with respect to General Marshall. He was constantly concerned with the question of how did we lose China? Why did American foreign policy suddenly throw its support from Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang to Mao Zedong and the communists? Why did that even happen? And, you know, McCarthy is not alone by any stretch of the imagination asking that question at that time. The House on American Activities Committee did repeatedly. So given you, you have to understand that Joseph McCarthy is not a bumbling fool. This is what I want people to take away from this. He was an incredibly smart man. He had a nearly photographic memory. He was multilingual, taught himself Russian so that he could ask questions of Russian witnesses in Russian. You know, this is yeah. not a stupid man. And, and unlike all the chicken hawks then and right. now, he was an actual, he, he was named, nicknamed Tail Gunner Joe Tail for Gunner a reason. Joe, yeah. he, was, yeah. he was in the battle, definitely. He, he had seen combat. Uh, he had been a you know tail gunner on some sort of photo reconnaissance aircraft or something, but but my point here is in raising his his uh, intelligence is that he would have been very likely to have known about the rumors of the nationalist Chinese gold and the whole Morgenthau bond scandal. And there's a reason I, I'm saying he would have been likely to know about it. And therefore, he may have likely heard rumors about Yamashita's gold and the Japanese gold <laughs> suctioning operation in Asia. Now, why do I say that? Because there's Peter. Hello, Peter. There's Peter. Nice Welcome to, to the show. 
Good Peter Seacash, I just want to, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Joseph, but uh, just Peter, uh, most people here know uh, Peter Seacash is, is, you know, one of uh, the guys that has helped me out so much in terms of researching, and I hope he's going to be writing his own book. And I want to say quickly while I have a moment to, uh, uh, Joseph, if you don't mind, um, my other really fantastic researcher, Chris Grace, who everybody here knows, uh, is in the hospital now, and I talked to him today. He's He's still very sick. So please say prayers for him, uh, thoughts of him. Uh, he's, as always, could use help. So if you have his, uh, if nothing else, send him, text him your support and uh, your words of encouragement. And if you can help him financially, you probably have his PayPal. He's listed enough online there. So please think of Chris Graves. The chat room is not, if, if Chris Graves was here, Joe's, he'd probably have 100 questions already himself for you. So uh, it was, we're definitely missing something here. But Peter is obviously the, the other Hall of Fame researcher that's helped me out so much. And I wanted him here because he is a real expert on Joe Farrell's work and he uh, can ask a lot more pointed questions than I can. But I didn't mean to finish what you were saying, Joseph. Then well, we were, talking, we were talking about this, the uh, question from your friend White Wolf of, of whether or not Senator McCarthy would have known about Yamashita's gold. Uh, given the character of the man and the rumors floating around Washington, D.C., I would find it very difficult to believe if he hadn't. Uh, particularly, you know, given the fact that J. Edgar Hoover is one of his close friends, that he's got all of these apparent connections, you know, inside the Pentagon, that he's got some sort of channel to the Venona transcripts, probably running through Hoover himself. I, I, I would... I would say that it's far more likely that he would know of it than not. And there is in the, in the Monmouth transcripts, there is something that I do cover in the books that, that is a bit of corroborative circumstantial evidence to that speculation. Namely that during the hearings, McCarthy's committee also uncovered some sort of what I can only characterize as a money laundering operation yep. that is being run <laughs> by the army using occupation currency for all of these countries <laughs> that, that the army is going yeah, into, right. beginning with Algeria of all places. And, you know, the, the, the army is literally counterfeiting Vichy French francs, you know, and, Italian lira and everything else, and on top of all of this, uh, Major Jordan, uh, Jordan Racy Jordan, pointed out before HUAC that some of the occupation currency plates for American dollars and German marks had been turned over to the Soviet Union, along <laughs> along with all the banknote technology to print them. You know? Wow. Yeah. So, and and the army and the U.S. government are liable for all of this. So, talk about a money laundering operation. Uh, they he was on to that aspect as well. Right. So, in other words, virtually every every crooked scheme that, that the Roosevelt White House could cook up, <laughs> McCarthy's <laughs> on it. <laughs> you know. Uh, I could use I could use an expression that we're probably all familiar, you know, like a fly on you know what. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Joseph, it sounds like not only like they they printed up so much uh, occupation currency that what they had to get the Forbes company to yes, yeah, that the the U.S. government had to outsource yes. to this <laughs> private firm, right? Which just happened to be owned by the Forbes family. 
Right. <laughs> which incidentally, which incidentally is closely connected to the Kennedys, you know. So, so wow. you know, there, there are channels, there are channels of information, informal channels of information that when you look at them all, you, you peel back, they all end up with Joe McCarthy. <laughs> you know? uh, in, in the second McCarthy book, I point out that Suzanne LaFollette, cousin of Robert LaFollette, is the secretary for the Dewey Commission examining Leon Trotsky. <laughs> so, you know, wow. You, you, you know that that had to have been a factor for that little group of people in the military to finger McCarthy on their shortlist. Well, let's see if this senator will, will bring all this well, up. Well, McCarthy, McCarthy also had, and again, I got this, uh, most of this from Peter, but um, he he had early on talked about um, alleged atrocities on the part of the allies, which I have yes. spent on. And, and he, uh, he, he was, again, he was a war hero, but you're talking about post-war America, late 40s and early 50s. Right. It was not a good time to say anything, you know, defending any kind of Nazi activity or going right. and said, and he was kind of, he was showing, I think, a lot of courage in doing that. So he wasn't just well, doing it. What he was, what he, what he was doing. You're talking about the Malmedy massacre. Yes, that, yes. That, that McCarthy was on, invited, quite literally, to be on that Senate committee that was was conducting the hearings on whether or not the German prisoners of war that allegedly conducted the Malmedy massacre, massacre had been given due process. Well, the inter and I, I cover this in the book. The interesting thing is, is if you, if you look at that hearing, that's where McCarthy establishes his reputation as a brawler. Okay. Um, he, he's a lawyer and he knows all the tricks of the trade and he pulls them all out and uses them in that, in that hearing the interesting thing is is that mccarthy's scholarship is divided on his motivations was he doing it because he was concerned for due process or not and one of the most ardent anti-mccarthy people daniel oshinsky whose work i rely on heavily not because i agree with him but because he's the most anti-mccarthy guy out there that is a genuine scholar Oshinsky makes it clear that, in his opinion, McCarthy isn't the slightest bit concerned about due process. And then he goes on for another paragraph to say, but if you look at McCarthy's treatment of the witnesses and of the subject, what he's really concerned about is the Army's treatment of the witnesses. Right. So the bottom line is, yeah, McCarthy really is concerned about the due process. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Otherwise, why be concerned about it? So, you know, this the problem with McCarthy is he ties them in knots because they can't get their narrative straight about the guy. Is he good or is he not? And if he's not, then why are we concerned about it? But if he if he is doing something decent here, then this makes the reason why they're trying to get rid of him all the more clear. He's too close to sensitive issues. He has an absolutely crackerjack investigative staff he's got a razor sharp mind with roy Cohn, and for for a short period bobby kennedy senior yes <laughs> you know? yes uh so 
this this is not a guy to be tangled with. And if you read those transcripts carefully, this is not somebody inventing stories. This is a guy who knows something. He has a conduit of information. He's asking detailed questions. And they're on to all sorts of security risks inside the government. And just plain old sloppy incompetence, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he's going after it. Wow. Now, Joseph, uh, I don't know if you got into this before I got on the show, but the, the, there's a year that keeps coming up in these, these uh, McCarthy hearings over and over. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes... Right, 1947. 1947. And it's not just the year, it's the month, July. Right. And it's McCarthy that constantly is, it's McCarthy himself that's constantly saying, oh, in July of 1947, were you in New Mexico doing radar experiments? Right. <laughs> well, jo well jo Joseph, what do you, what do you think? Because obviously it was raised in, what do you think... Uh, because obviously something happened there. It wasn't a weather yeah. balloon. You had the general, no. the neighbor talking about it for years, sworn to secrecy and material right. they'd never seen before and all that stuff. For Pex Basildon and all these people. What what do you think happened at Roswell? Do you think McCarthy had any idea and was just kind of okay. dancing around the edges? Okay. okay, again, let's remember McCarthy has a razor sharp mind and a nearly photographic memory. So, in other words, McCarthy was a junior senator from Wisconsin, just arrived in Washington, D.C. when Roswell happened. And this is an event that makes all the national headlines. Okay. And let's remember what happens in 1952 prior to McCarthy having the Monmouth hearings where he's raising July of 1947 constantly. That was the 1952 UFO flap in Washington. Right. With the radar signatures. So here's Joe McCarthy, Senate, chairman of the Senate Operations Committee, asking Monmouth, Fort Monmouth witnesses about their radar experiments in New Mexico in July of 1947. Now, if I'm in the U.S. Air Force, I hit the panic button. <laughs> because... What McCarthy is ch signaling just by asking the question with that date is, I know something about this, and I want to find out how much you know about it. He's poking around the whole Roswell story. Mm -hmm. And in his poking, he's uncovering the fact that, oh, some documents have gone missing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was the U.S. Air Force that made the documents go missing. And, oh, by the way, the CIA is involved in it, too. Well, well let, let's go for Let's flash forward to now where, yeah. I mean, somebody I I, uh, I I spent a lot of time. You've talked about pyramid. I spent a lot of times when I wasn't doing reading about JFK as a teenager. I was reading about UFOs and all that. Mm -hmm. So I'm very familiar with the steep with the literature. And I know how everyone who reported seeing UFO was treated for decades. They were ridiculed. They're scoffed mm -hmm. at. They lost their jobs. Their families, frankly, mm -hmm. they were just like other whistleblowers. Suddenly, within the last few years, there's credibility. Right. Mainstream television. And I'm sure you're familiar with Project Bluebeam. Are they planning a fake alien invasion, Joe? Well, let me go back to Roswell. <laughs> I, you asked me what I think crashed. Yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, I don't think it was a weather balloon. And secondly, I don't think it was anything extraterrestrial. Right. I think it was very probably Nazi. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the reason I think that, you'd have to read another one of my books about, about Roswell. Um, but the reason I think that is that 
first of all, if you read the Majestic 12 documents carefully, the Cooper Cantwell set of documents, they indicate that the Army Air Force people called in the German scientists to look at the wreckage and, and render an opinion. But the, the real smoking gun is the U.S. Air Force's intelligence collection memorandum written by Brigadier General Shulgin, and it has two versions, Don. There's the version that Ufology loves to cite, and that version is a clearly doctored document, and there is the original version. In both versions, in both versions, which are, this is a legitimate, genuine document with a fake version with addenda, okay? But in both versions, the chairman of the U.S. Air Force Intelligence is ordering that every effort be made to find the Horton brothers. Now, if you don't know who the Horton brothers are, <laughs> the Hortons were these guys in Germany, in Nazi Germany, designing these, these flying wing aircraft for, for the Luftwaffe. And they, the U.S. Air Force wants to know, and remember, Shulgin's memorandum is in September of 1947, after Roswell and right after the creation of the U.S. Air Force by President Truman. Okay? So the first thing the Air Force does out of the gate is we want to go find the Horton brothers. <laughs> Where are they? Wow. What are they doing? Wow. What are they doing? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll tell you where they are, and I'll tell you what they're doing. They're in Argentina, <laughs> working. Oh, where else? Would where else would a good Nazi go? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> working for Juan Perón, right? Juan Perón, and yeah. right. Doing for Juan Perón. Well, it, hmm. it turns out they're designing Delta jet wing aircraft for Juan Perón. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Wow. So, so in other words, if to to put this in perspective here, and to bring it back to McCarthy, okay, <laughs> if something Nazi crashes in the New Mexico desert in July of 1947, what does the U.S. Air Force have? It has a headache. It has a problem. Because, first of all, the war has been over for two years and three months. <laughs> and Nazis are not supposed to be flying around out there, <laughs> particularly over our airspace, and particularly doing so with impunity. <laughs> okay, that's problem number one. So what do we do? Well, um, it's E.T. It's a weather balloon. <laughs> But it's not Nazi. Okay. <laughs> That's the first thing you do. Well, why is this why is this important? Well, McCarthy raises the date, number one. Number two, McCarthy is a very uh close political ally of a Wisconsin family by the name of the Harnischfeggers. Okay. Now, if you do a little research into the Harnischfeger family, you'll find out that, oh, by the way, they were pro-Hitler before the war. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, in other words, what I'm suggesting here, and McCarthy, by the way, is close friends with, guess who? Hunt and Murkison in Texas. Mm -hmm. 
And who do they have as their private intelligence network, according to Professor Peter Dale Scott? Well, oh. it's West German intelligence, General <laughs> Reinhard Galen. Yes, so right. We have, we have another channel of information. For an intelligence digest, right? For an intelligence digest. Right. right to Senator McCarthy. In other words, this Senator McCarthy, whether you like it or not, is sending, sitting smack dab in the middle of an intelligent spider web, a potential intelligent spider web that could funnel information to him from anywhere. So I think when he's raising the Roswell date in the Monmouth transcripts, he already knows that radar is involved. It may have been involved in the crash and it's got something to do with the UFO. And he's he's literally fishing around to see what the army is going to say. And the army's response is, get rid of the guy. <laughs> we don't want to go there. <laughs> so, Joseph, so did 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 McCarthy start out looking for communists and just ran into highly classified stuff? Or did he start out looking for highly classified well, he's, areas? Okay. He starts out, he makes the claim about communists at the, at the famous Wheeling, West Virginia speech. Right. He becomes, in his second term in the Republican sweep in 1952, he's granted his chairmanship of the Government Operations Committee. So that gives him carte blanche to look at all of the security procedures of the federal government. So okay. his, his anti-communist thing is transformed at that point, and you can see it clearly in the transcripts. He's now got to oversee the security procedures for the federal government, and that includes the military. And that's what enables him to bump up against this UFO radar money laundering operation wow. because all of that is now under his jurisdiction so in other words what began as as an anti-communist problem and a little narrative problem for fdr and harry truman suddenly <laughs> has become we've got this guy who has all of these fbi agents on his investigative team We've, he's got Roy Cohn, who put Ethel and Julius Rosenberg in the electric chair, and he's coming after all of this. <laughs> so, right. yeah, we got a problem here, folks. <laughs> and it, it seems like the, well, the before, Truman administration and the Eisenhower administration, they pulled out all the stops to go yeah. after this guy. Yeah. Eisenhower hated him. Eisenhower, oh, Sher Sherman Adams, you know, Eisenhower's, Eisenhower's uh, Eminos agrees hated McCarthy and the, the army secretary, uh, army secretary Adams, I think it was not Adams. Uh, oh, I forget what his name, Stevens. Uh, Stevens was, if you, if you look at the background of the army McCarthy hearings, Stevens was going out of his way to mollify and appease McCarthy. And, and what they were trying to do is get rid of Cone. Oh, is this the whole thing with David Shine? This is the whole thing with David Shine. This right. The, the the mechanism to shut down McCarthy is to get rid of Cone, pry McCarthy and Cone apart. The mechanism to shut down uh, Roy Cone is his homosexuality and the very never proven but always very suggestive relationship he had with David Shine. Uh, and again, but, Shine but, 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 
Yeah, David Shine David Shine goes on to marry Miss Universe and has right. six children and right. die in a mysterious plane crash after becoming yeah. a big recording executive. So right. these, these right. are these things that happened, you know. Yeah, it's just it's just you know the whole thing is absurd. Um, you know, you had that you had that famous uh, pre have you no decency theater speech. You had that yeah. famous clash between McCarthy and and Welch over pixies and fairies. Uh, you know, <laughs> where, where McCarthy, funny. where McCarthy is accusing Welch as being an expert, an expert in pixies, and Welch's Welch's retort was, "Well, yes, they're a close relative of the fairy." <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you still get there. There's still, I mean, the the movie uh, with um, what's his name? Uh, oh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and um, I think George Clooney, Clooney was George in Clooney. it. Good night and good or whatever. Good night. Good. Just again, they're still attacking him, and and you can see just from the research Joseph right. has done that uh, Peter has done that that that's this is so dishonest. But before we move on from McCarthy, because I know there's so many other books and I'm sure Peter can maybe mine them for the best questions to ask about what subjects, but um, what do you think would have happened? McCarthy was 48 years old. He was, mm -hmm. he would have been one of the youngest presidents. I mean, he was still very young, politically speaking. Mm -hmm. Do you think he had presidential aspirations? What would the 1960s have been like with the Joe McCarthy? Around? Well, McCarthy, McCarthy did speak at the 1952 Republican national convention. Uh, he was he was one of the keynote speakers. Um, I honestly think that McCarthy, you know, I characterize McCarthy as a shameless opportunist, and I don't I don't mean anything negative or evil about that. He's a typical politician. You know, he knows he knows how to seize a, a crisis of opportunity, and and make hay from it. And that's all I mean by it. Um. But McCarthy, I don't think he was an ambitious man, to be sure. Uh, and he, he did like the power that he, that he wielded in the Senate. But he was also, I think, a consummate, uh, he was a consummate lawyer in the way he ran his committee hearings. And I think he liked that role. I think he, I think he would have, floundered had he had he sought higher office he was in exactly the right the right spot and it was exactly the right fit and i think he knew that uh he he liked the idea of being the powerful senator senator running a powerful committee uh that that was his bailiwick so i i really do question whether or not he would have had presidential aspirations and the other problem mccarthy was um my assessment of the man was that McCarthy was a very carefully and able politician. He was able to calculate and measure risks with an incredible degree of finesse and subtlety. And I think he would have taken measure of, of Richard Nixon and, and been aware of the fact that Nixon had his own presidential aspirations and was in a much better position as vice president to go after them. So I don't, I don't see a 1960 McCarthy run at the presidency. And even if there had been, I think Nixon would still have won that. Um, Nixon was Nixon himself was certainly an able politician. Uh, you know, Tricky Dick doesn't get the nickname. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
that nickname for nothing. So, yeah, I think McCarthy was kind of happy where he was. Now, uh, Joseph, I've, I've got, a, got a quick question. You often uh, tie the death of James Forrestal to the beginning of these committee hearings, the Army yeah. McCarthy hearings. Uh, how are these two events related? Well, I don't think... I don't think Forrestal is directly related to the Army McCarthy hearings themselves. I do think, as I pointed out to Don, I do think that Forrestal, if you if you accept McCarthy's own explanation of how of how he got started, he mentions McCarthy mentions having had dinner with Secretary Forrestal, which I think probably did happen, even though Roy Cohn gives a slightly different version of how McCarthy got his start. What I'm arguing is you don't need to view those two accounts as being contradictory to each other. There's right. simply one guy's telling one part of it and another guy's telling another part of it. Um, I think it's very likely that McCarthy did have a dinner with James Forrestal for the simple reason both men are Roman Catholic. They are both practicing Roman Catholics. Um they are both coming out of the whole New Deal milieu. McCarthy at one point was a Democrat and a New Deal Democrat until I think the moment he starts probing with the whole anti-communist thing and, and was approached by those servicemen with their with their list. I think once McCarthy got deeply into that, he, he began to back away from, from the whole New Deal uh, politics because everywhere he was turning, he was confronted by the rot of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Right. Uh, and his, his misadministration, you know, uh, and it was, it was too big for someone like McCarthy to ignore, you know, McCar whatever you say about McCarthy, the man did have principles. Right. Do, do you see that question on the screen from Karen Carpenter? Who's a big fan of yours. If you could ask McCarthy a few questions, what would they be? Dr. Oh, 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 wow. Um, <laughs> I, I would ask what, what White Wolf asked earlier. Number one, did you know about the, the Morgenthau bearer bond scandal? Did you know about Yamashita's gold? Did you ever investigate any of, of those war crimes allegations? Uh, Yamashita himself, General Yamashita, being a case in point, was the man fairly tried or not? I happen to think, no, he probably was not. Um, you know, he was he was an extraordinarily capable officer. And I think, you know, we just basically executed revenge on the man uh, for being competent when so many other general officers on the Allied side at the time were not. One one other thing I noticed is that he uh, McCarthy, he doesn't he's starting to kind of look into the whole uh, missing Chiang Kai-shek money as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think the whole business with what I think happens here, Peter, is that when he starts probing the the occupation money scandal, that that's the other alarm bell because number one, sitting squat in the middle of that whole occupation money scandal is who Harry Dexter White. Right now, Harry Dexter White is a close confidant of Franklin Delano Rottenvelt and pardon my pardon my <laughs> name calling here folks but the other thing that we now know about Harry Dexter White is that he does appear in the Venona transcripts as an agent of influence for the Soviet Union 
Right. So if my thesis that McCarthy is getting the Venona transcripts or summaries of the information in the transcripts as product to direct his investigations. Again, this is what I think the agreement is. We'll give you the intelligence, but you have to go out and develop the proof for it. You cannot use the information in these memos. Nobody can know that those memos actually exist. Right, right. Got it. Got it. This is why the connection to Hoover is so important, because Hoover does know about this. His guy is in charge of it. Hoover is telling McCarthy what FBI guys to hire. And it's clear if you read the transcripts, which few people have done, McCarthy right. is getting information from somewhere because he knows exactly the when McCarthy himself is asking questions, you can tell, or Cone, you can tell they're asking questions based on information that they have, which they're right. not disclosing. Right. They're doing, they're doing what lawyers do. They're getting things on the record. That's the key. That's what McCarthy is for. And he's, he's a master at it. So I think once that McCarthy starts probing the occupation money scandal and uncovering the fact that it's Harry Dexter White who's authorizing this, the alarm bells are going off inside the Truman administration and the Eisenhower administration that if he keeps pulling these threads, he's going to go all the way back to Morgenthau. He's going to go all the way back to Chiang Kai-shek. He's going to go back to the nationalist Chinese gold. And if you want to throw General Yamashita in there, he may uncover that whole that whole mess too. And we can't have him do that because that's our source of secret funding. Well, you mentioned... Bucket, uh, a, a, well, I just oh. say there's another question, question for you there related, uh, Dr. Farrell on the screen. Chris Buckin wants to know about Victoria Peak and how that gold was connected to JFK and LBJ and the New World Order along with Yamashita's gold. Well... Wow. I'm I'm not familiar with the Victoria Peak thing. Um, I do know that there are a lot of rumors out there about the so-called Black Eagle Trust. There was this business about the Soviet Union and bonds coming due on 9/11 and so on and so forth. Um, oh, collateral damage, wasn't that it? The yes. collateral damage. Okay. Right. Um, my suspicion is if you grant for the sake of argument, the proposition that these things are true, number one, and number two, connected, then my suspicion is that that Yamashita's gold and, and the nationalist Chinese gold, Chiang Kai-shek's gold, is at the heart of this. And the reason why they react with such overwhelming force you know, this off the charts demonization that Don has mentioned, you know, many times during the course of the interview of, of Senator McCarthy, that the reason for that off the charts demonization is because they don't want people probing the gold. Well, why don't they want people probing the gold? Simple answer is it has been rehypothecated over and over so many times to create so much liquidity in the system that the system would collapse if people found out. Well, it's money that's not doesn't really exist. 
in it's, reality, it's not really there. It's like bonds and securities right. that have been placed right. on top of it. Right. 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 Wow. That, that's the problem. You know, I, I pointed this out in the, in the 2014 secret space program conference. The problem with a secret reserve is you can rehypothecate it. So in other words, it becomes collateral for this loan. Oh, and then for that loan. And then for that bond. And then for that. And then for that. So in other words, it's 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 so over collateralized and rehypothecated that it, it basically doesn't function as as a backing at all. This is the problem with so-called gold backed central bank digital currencies. Because that reserve always remains hidden, and because hidden, it can be rehypothecated and the money's still worthless. <laughs> You know, the the key point here is what? The key point is convertibility. Can I take my silver certificate to the United States Treasury or to my local bank and get a silver dollar for it? Wow. Without without convertibility, you don't have a you don't have a bullion backed currency, period. Period. Wow. The other the other interesting thing in in your um, in your first McCarthy book was that it sounded like the 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 army was introducing an early form of SDRs into the yes. the countries they occupied. Yes. They were resetting all of the the exchange yes. rates. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because what you know this is an old Venetian bankers trick. This is not new. If you're if you're if you're exchanging several currencies on the banks on the Rialto, how do you do it? Well, you create what's called a unit of account. And that unit of account is what's traded between the banks. It is not, it's not Venetian ducats. It's not Florentine ducats. It's this unit of account. That's what's traded. And if you trade that unit of account from one bank to another and a depositor comes in and wants his money, then you give him his money based on the exchange rate vis-a-vis that unit of account. They've been doing this a long time. That's what wow. they're doing now. That's how that's how the BRICS are doing this and bypassing the dollar because it means they've got a unit of account that's not the dollar. The dollar is the reserve currency because it's a unit of account for other currencies. Wow. That's great one. Well, I want to, Harlan Stonewall has asked me a couple of times what you think of RFK Jr.'s campaign. I, I want to talk about what you think of the president's state of politics, but I, I know Peter uh-huh. probably has more questions about uh, what just get that? I mean, when you look at things today, uh, what are your feelings on Trump and Biden and election well, fraud? I'll tell you, I can tell you that stuff? really easy. What What do Trump and RFK Jr. have in common? Well, uh, bad media both coverage. Of them, <laughs> both of them are from wealthy families. Yeah, both of them have informal networks and connections that pose a threat to the deep state. That's what they both have. And in both cases, they literally know where the bodies are buried. Who's Trump's close advisor? Roy Cohn. He was, yeah. Yeah. Now, Trump Tower in New York City did not get built without Roy Cohn because he was the go-between between Trump and the mafia. You don't get anything built in New York City without the mob. And Cohn knew them all. He knew where the bodies were buried and what the secrets were. That's how things got done. Trump has another deep state connection besides Roy Cohn. In other words, Roy Cohn could set Donald Trump straight on everything in the record concerning Joe McCarthy in that whole era. Number one, 
And he could also tell them how they got rid of McCarthy. This was deep state shenanigans and tricks, and it ran all the way to Sherman Adams and Dwight Eisenhower. Absolutely. Trump has another connection that's very interesting to remember. That's his uncle, John. Yes, the Tesla papers. Nikola Tesla. Yeah, Tesla. <laughs> you know, so when Trump is talking about exotic technology and oh, we don't even need nuclear, I tend to sit up and listen, you know, because Trump's not running his mouth. He right. really does know something. All, all that stuff about invisible planes and whatnot. Yeah. And then we have RFK. Well, RFK Jr. has gone on record and said, no, I don't think Saran Saran murdered my dad. Uh, and that means he probably has some things to say about his uncle Teddy, who I think was another one of these Kennedys whose sudden about face on so many positions mm -hmm. that he used to hold is due to having had several death attempts on him. Oh, he wasn't in the car. I, I wrote about Chappaquiddick. He, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't in the car. <laughs> the airplane, all of that stuff. Yeah. I think, okay, we're going to get rid of you unless you play ball with us. And, Teddy does a complete flip-flop on so many social issues that's not funny. Abortion being right up there, folks. You know, he was an anti-abortionist, believe it or not, at one point. Wow. And all of a sudden, oh boy, I'm now for it. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got RFK Jr. who can tell the story about his dad, about his uncle, and about his other uncle, <laughs> you know, yeah. the president. And he probably knows some things. And by the way, about his uncle's son, his cousin, and that whole plane crash, he probably has had some uh, late-night dinners. And I, I would love to talk to him about that. He has to know yeah. about JFK Jr. Of course he does. Yeah. So the last thing you want is anybody like a McCarthy or Donald Trump or an RFK Jr. coming into the swamp and saying, oh, by the way, folks, here's what I know. <laughs> because people are going to listen and take yeah. them seriously. Well, what, so why is he running for president? Is, and then, and then they, he asked for secret service protection. They don't give it to him. Oh, and, I wonder uh, why and that. And we've already had that connection to them stripping the secret service protection from his uncle. And yeah, yeah. And they've, already, they've, already, they've already had Joseph, they, they just right had that thing where that thing. guy showed up with a gun at his rally. I with, know. You know. <laughs> just, I mean, right come on. the corner from the Ambassador Hotel, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if I were RFK, you know, I'd, I'd call up Vladimir Putin and say, have you got any FSB guys that need a job, you know? <laughs> um, no, it, it's absurd. And, and in RFK's case, you've got something else. And again, we're back to McCarthy. You've got a lawyer who has made a career out of challenging the big pharma narrative that these quack scenes don't cause autism and they're entirely safe. Well, <laughs> Kennedy's won all of those suits that he's brought to court. So he's, he's a direct threat to certain aspects of the swamp, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, whom he wrote a whole book about. All <laughs> yeah. oh, right. So, you know, you've got you've got two characters here and and the problem is you can't control them. Because you have no monetary hold over them. You've you've tried the blackmail route with Trump, that's not working. I there's apparently nothing blackmailable about Bobby Kennedy that he hasn't already talked about himself, and so, you yeah. know, that's off the table. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh 
<laughs> interesting times we live in. Go ahead, Peter. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I, just to take us a little off topic here, uh, Joseph, I, one of the most interesting parts of your second McCarthy book was not only, not only had you analyzed McCarthy's um, hearings as, as very real, but you actually went and started looking at what is generally known as the Soviet, you know, quote unquote, show trials. Oh, yeah. And yeah, you actually found that there was a lot of, a lot of reality to them. Right. Like what right. was, what was that all about? If you don't mind okay. sharing. Okay. Stalin, if you go back, and uh, I get into that because Suzanne LaFollette was the secretary to the Dewey Commission. The Dewey Commission was John Dewey, you know, American. She was from Appleton. She was from Appleton, right. Right. Yeah. Fancy that. Another coincidence. Just happens to be from the same old town as Joseph McCarthy. Golly gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's you can't write a Hollywood B-movie. <laughs> <laughs> with this many coincidences. But anyway, um, Suzanne LaFollette is, is the secretary of the Dewey Commission. The Dewey Commission was set up, quite literally, by John Dewey himself to give Leon Trotsky, of all people, an, a forum in which he could respond to the show trials being conducted in Moscow during the 1930s, okay? So they, they provide him this venue and this opportunity. They go down to Mexico where he's living at the time until Stalin's assassin finally finds him. Um, and Trotsky gives his testimony to, to, to this ad hoc committee chaired by John Dewey. Suzanne LaFollette is is the secretary and actually types up the report. So that got me to thinking, well, why are they going to all this effort to bash the Moscow show trials, which are clearly show trials. So there must be something here that they don't want to have looked at too carefully. And that's the show trials themselves. So I start looking into the show trials. At every single one of the show trials, Stalin's prosecutor, in other words, Stalin himself speaking through the prosecutor, is stating that there are Trotskyist networks inside the Soviet Union working to undermine the government. Now, there's two ways we've been taught to view these claims. There's the standard American quackademia history narrative that there were no such things and Stalin is making all this up so that he can get rid of his enemies. <laughs> okay, which would be a Stalin thing to do. <laughs> but the other, the other possibility is there really were such groups and networks and they really were plotting to overthrow Stalin. <laughs> okay. As it turns out, you have to go to a little-known military historian of World War II on the Eastern Front, a German uh, historian by the name of Paul Carell. Same spelling as my last name with a C instead of an F. Okay. So Mr. Carell writes a book, two books on, on the Eastern Front in World War II, Hitler Moves East and Scorched Earth. In Hitler Moves East, as he is copiously detailing the the German offensive in 1941 against Moscow, he bumps up and mentions a 
group of Russian prisoners that were captured south of Moscow near a little uh, Soviet city by the name of Tula, where these captured Russian prisoners inform the Germans that are interrogating them that they come from something, or, or they keep mentioning the Khabarovsk lot. Now, perk your ears up. Khabarovsk is a little Russian city north of Vladivostok, way, way in the extreme eastern part of Siberia. It's close to the border of Manchuria. Khabarovsk was where Marshal Mikhail Tukhachevsky, Marshal of the Red Army, Marshal of the Soviet Union, the fellow who stopped the Polish march on Kiev in 1922 and marched Marshal Pilsudski all the way back to Moscow until Commissar Joseph Stalin, who was in Marshal Tukhachevsky's army, countermanded on his own authority one of Tukhachevsky's orders and botched the Soviet attempt to end Poland. So Poland survived because Marsh, Commissar Stalin countermanded Marshal Tukhachevsky. The two had no love lost for each other. So Tukhachevsky, Marshal of the Soviet Union, very capable officer, in fact, the man who many credit with the, the real conceptual uh, doctrines behind modern warfare in World War II, he trained with Colonel General Heinz Guderian during that interwar period. Uh, and we know who Guderian was. Tukhachevsky, during the collectivization period in the Soviet Union, in defiance of Joseph Stalin, had transferred Ukrainian units of the Red Army all the way to Khabarovsk in Siberia, where he gave them their own plots of land, a few chickens, and a little cattle to farm. So he had about 110,000 trained military units in Khabarovsk at his own personal beck and call who were economically invested in their own family and they were capable of picking up and moving militarily on a dime's notice. Why is that important? Because first of all, Tukhachevsky is one of the people that Stalin fingered in those show trials as plotting to overthrow him. Right. And in fact, Tukhachevsky was found guilty and executed because of it. Now, bad move if you're going to be facing the Wehrmacht in a few years, but, but, but this is what happened. As it turns out, the more you dig, and I, I really, I, I became very curious about Marshal Tukhachevsky and, and it turns out that Stalin, during one of the May Day parades at when Tukhachevsky was still alive, had had Marshal Voroshilov station massive amounts of NKVD troops, not only in Red Square, but in and around the city. Why? Because Tukhachevsky's units were going to be marching in the parade. So Stalin was afraid that the May Day celebrations were going to be the opportunity for an actual military coup d'etat to overthrow him. And Tukhachevsky, on top of all of this, was maintaining his personal correspondence and personal links to people like Kamenev and 
some of the other people. Uh, I think at one point, even uh, Sergo Ornojokidze, who is one of Stalin's, you know, party guys, uh, Tukhachevsky had all sorts of connections. And as a marshal of the Red Army during that period in Soviet history, during the Polish invasion, who else was he friends with? Well, he was friends with the creator of the Red Army, Leon Trotsky. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Wow. The show trials were probably, yeah, there was a lot of theater in them, but there was a real fire at the center of them. Wow. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Peter, whatever you've you've read it. So what, what do you come up with? Like he's got so many books here. If we can, like, well, is there something one of the one of the that might be interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna. I was actually gonna uh, ask him about uh, if if he thought that if McCarthy's uh, hearings continued to go on, if he would have started to look into Roosevelt and oh, the Pearl Harbor. Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. what he seemed to no, say. The, yeah. the the the. the the publication of his speech about Marshall in book form, where he reveals the information he did not reveal in 1951, but which he surely knew. Mm -hmm. uh, he reveals the fact that in Upton's book about Litvinov, that Marshall was the one that picked Litvinov up when he was appointed to be ambassador to Washington, D.C. Marshall was the one on the day of Pearl Harbor that picked Litvinov up. Well, <laughs> I think I think that was McCarthy saying, you know, signaling as he normally did by by his own use of theatrics and symbolism that if, if you want to go here, we can open up the whole Pearl Harbor can of worms and then some. So, like I said to Don, he was he was threatening to subpoena not only Upton, but mm -hmm. find out who his sources were for that allegation about Marshall and Litvinov and then subpoena them. And after he got all that on record, then he subpoenas Marshall himself and gets him on the record, and then he goes after FDR. Right. Yeah, it's Absolutely. it's right it's right there in his Marshall book, too. Yeah. It's not yeah. this isn't even like classified stuff. Right. And you've got to remember the first the first big and and to this day still kind of the textbook on, on the Roosevelt administration's pre-knowledge of, of Pearl Harbor still remains that book that was published in 1949, which became the, the centerpiece. The Secret those, War. The Secret War became the centerpiece of those congressional hearings after the end of World War II. McCarthy, in other words, is threatening to open all that up again and challenge the whole narrative. Wow. So, you know, if, if, you've, got a, if you've got a senator that can bring down the whole New Deal narrative. The only other senator in, in, in the Senate at the time doing that or attempting to was Robert Taft. And yes. we know what Eisenhower did to him in 1952. Yep. So mm -hmm. it was only natural that Eisenhower is going to take, he's going to take out Taft because Taft is the bigger threat of the two at the time. Once he gets rid of Taft, then he can go after McCarthy. That's wow. exactly what you see. Wow. Doing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, the the other since Don brought up uh, to uh, ask you about your other your other works, uh, the other two books that I've read of yours besides the McCarthy ones are the Hidden Finance and your LBJ book. Mm -hmm. um, in your your tell tell about um, one of the most interesting things in the the Hidden Finance book was that. 
there was that whole period in the early 2000s where they <laughs> they they kept running into these these Japanese businessmen in, in strange parts of, of Europe, you know, with suitcases full of uh, like bonds. yeah, <laughs> billion dollars of, of of U.S. bearer bonds. Well, look, look, I, I the bearer bond scandals uh, that they're they're some of my favorite things because it began with that I think it was what 2007 somewhere around there. Yeah, it was like early Obama, I think. It was, I think it was the second Obama administration, yeah. right before he left office. Um, we had that, we had that, I love this. We had that incident of the two Japanese salesmen, businessmen, traveling from Italy into Switzerland, who for some reason that is never explained, <laughs> are, are intercepted by the Italian Garda de Finanza police. You know, so okay, what are the Italian financial police doing on the border between Italy and Switzerland, searching a train for two Japanese businessmen? Well, Italy's not telling us, but <laughs> but they they apprehend these two Japanese gentlemen, and then we come to find out, as the story is elaborated, that the Japanese gentlemen are let go by the guard of finance, right. and they disappear <laughs> completely <laughs> off the radar and have never been seen or heard Wow. So, what do you what do you think was even going on there? Because I think because I think Hang there on, were. I'm, I'm not even getting. I, I'm not. I'm not done. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> The, the Italian police find a false bottom in the briefcase, and in the false bottom, they find $134.5 billion worth of bearer bonds. <laughs> and a number of these bonds were denominated in a billion dollars. It created such a scandal that President Obama, at a press conference was asked about this and why did the amount of money just happen to be coincidental with the amount of money in the troubled asset relief fund? $134 wow. and a half billion dollars. Well, President Obama says, well, as far as I know and as far as I've been told, these bonds are fake because the United States has never issued bonds in denominations of $1 billion. Everybody's happy. We go home. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, the bonds are fake. I went out and found a picture of the bonds. Right. And I, I even looked up the article that was published in East Asia News, a Vatican outlet. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this, this is not your typical Hollywood robbery script we're dealing with here so i said so i i ticked down my vat you know i put a check mark next to the vatican box on my to-do list and so i start looking at the bonds themselves so the bond turns out to be this green thing that looks like a, a large piece of current it looks like confederate money but it's a greenback and it's got a picture of president kennedy in the oval on the front and it has a red seal on the front that's designed, I think, to mimic the red seal of a United States note, okay? A treasury note. 
But the seal says Money World, and Money World turns out to be an East Asia Indonesian trader in sovereign securities. <laughs> okay. So, okay, we have the Vatican Bank, or pardon me, the Vatican reporting on an East Asia sovereign securities trading house that's putting out counterfeit bonds <laughs> with a seal designed to look like a U.S. Treasury seal. And then you flip the thing over and you look at what's on the back of it. What's on the back of it are the lunar excursion module, the moon, and the space shuttle. <laughs> wow. And I'm thinking, okay, there, there's signaling going on here. So I don't think anything more about it. And then we have the next bearer bond scandal, which occurs, I believe it was in Spain. Yeah, Spain or Portugal. Spain or Portugal. Right. And this time the bearer bonds are again or denominated in one billion dollars. They look completely different. They are now based on the one hundred thousand dollar gold certificate note with Woodrow Wilson's face plastered on it and one billion dollars. And it's got all these little fake coupons <laughs> attached to it, which you can clip off when when the bond supposedly comes due. And this is all in in a strong box that purportedly is the Chicago Federal Reserve and they're these bearer bonds, $2 trillion worth wow. <laughs> of bearer bonds with Woodrow Wilson are accompanied by, I think it was $100 million of $100,000 gold certificate notes banded in J.P. Morgan Chase bands. <laughs> Wow. Each each one of these stacks being uh, what was it ten million dollars? Okay, <laughs> and in a strong box. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. And before I can even make up my mind, what the hell is going on here? There's another bearer bond scandal a few weeks later in Italy again, to the tune of six trillion dollars. <laughs> With who with billion dollar bearer bonds again, and this one is in another strong box. This time from oh boy, surprise, surprise, the Dallas Federal Reserve Branch. <laughs> and we are assured that all of this is counterfeit. We've never produced any bearer bonds for a billion dollars, much less put them in strong boxes and ship them to Spain and Italy. <laughs> Now I gotta tell you, I got by this point, I'm suspicious. So I start researching these things, and there I, I discovered there was even a book that was published by an academic somewhere in American Quackademia that is reassuring us that all of this is fake, totally fake. Well, here's my question. Here's my question. Whoever is counterfeiting all of this is going to an awful lot of trouble to create the strong boxes from Federal Reserve Banks, fill them with lithographed bearer bonds, which itself is an interesting process to be using if you're a counterfeiter, and you're counterfeiting things that don't exist. Now, Normally, counterfeiters only counterfeit things that do exist. You don't counterfeit $7 bills and try to spend them. 
So then the question is, well, why are they going to all these lengths to counterfeit things that don't exist? Because even if you're only getting a return of a penny on the dollar represented value of these things, it's still such an astronomical amount of money to be counterfeiting that no one is going to be able to trade with you. That's the key. The amount of money is so huge that it precludes anybody from using these things. So what I concluded, go ahead, Don. You no, no, I was just going to say, I want, I want to make sure we get in Peter, if you ask him something about the LBJ book, because I know that would interest oh. me, certainly. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, well, as soon as he's done done with this, I, I want to hear yeah, the rest of finish, it. Joseph. Go ahead and finish. Well, the, the amounts of money are so astronomical, I came to a rather interesting conclusion, and it, it took me back to the original bear bond scandal of the $134 billion with those candy bear bonds. I came to the conclusion that these things represent a real but hidden financial system and that these bearer bonds were part of, of the way that this system was clearing money, which was truly in astronomical amounts. And lo and behold, once I did that, then I started running into the stories of the Morgenthau bonds from 1934, right. which were bonds that were deliberately printed with deliberate, with, with deliberate errors so that they could claim that the bonds were counterfeit. And this scam was repeated by the Japanese Prime Minister Tanaka in the 70s and 80s with the so-called 57 bonds in Japan. Liberal Democratic Party. Yes, yeah. that were printed with deliberate errors so that Tanaka, when he swapped these bonds for bonds that were coming due, he could go back to the bondholders if they were not um, behaving properly and say, oh, they're counterfeit. We owe you nothing. Wow. So this, these things to me represent a huge hidden system of finance. So why is that original bearer bond important? We're going back to your question about McCarthy and the occupation plate money. Right. If you look at the back of the bond, you're being told that what they were doing to collateralize these bonds was they were collateralizing space and whatever they might find eventually in space. And once you accept that proposition, then you can collateralize to the limit. Okay. They're, in other words, acting and behaving exactly like the Venetian bankers on the Rialto did in the heyday of the Venetian Republic. Sure, we'll give you a loan so that you can go trade your spices and slaves and whatever else that you want to trade with the Orient. We get X share percentage of whatever it is you bring back. So, in other words, the, the bearer bonds represent the collateralization of space against future profit. It's like the Confederate system of money. The Confederate States of America will pay to the bearer on demand within 10 years of the conclusion of a treaty of peace between the United States of America and the Confederate States of America, X number of dollars. It's an IOU on the future. That's what they did. So if you look at all the talk about collateralization or pardon me mining asteroids in outer space and and commercialization of space they've already collateralized it so now they have to go out there and get it and isn't it interesting after they created the derivatives crisis peter 
Yeah. With 14 to 17 quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives. That's an amount several times the entire gross domestic product of the entire planet. Oh my after, God. Yes. After putting that amount of derivatives into this financial system, it's still sloshing around in there and they don't know what to do about it other than they make the claim every now and then, if you're, if you've been following very carefully, they will make the claim this asteroid out there is worth fourteen quadrillion dollars. That's I've how they that. that yeah, that's how they intend to clear the books. Or they can either go out and mine it or they can go out and claim to have mined it. Or wow. they or they can claim we can't go out and mine it because it belongs to somebody else and they're here and they're really mad at us. <laughs> that's insane. That's it's insane. insane but oh my people, god. These people are insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh you know, my. Why do, you, why do you think I'm writing about all of this? It's all connected. <laughs> and along yeah. comes Joe McCarthy. Oh, by the way, uh, what were you guys doing down there in July of 1947? I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> like, shut them down. Shut them down. Can't go there. We got, we got big plans, and it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I was going to say, because the time we have left, we can just maybe talk yeah. a little bit about LBJ. So basically, you wrote a book. Uh, is you talking about the book, the LBJ and JFK assassination? Is that what he wrote? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, I, I have I have a question about that. So, um, well, I mean, I it, it it made sense to me, but it was uh, you have a, a very unique uh, view on the the Kennedy assassination, where you don't you don't just look at one group, but it looks like it's many groups are uh, collaborating here and kind of a coalescence to. Mm -hmm. To you know, each each group having their own ends, of course, you know reasons for wanting the president out of the way. Uh, would you mind telling us about that? Well, the book is the book is called LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy. The subtitle is is a coalescence of interests, because you know, I I won't say that I'm a Kennedy assassination scholar, but I've certainly read my fair amount of of works on the subject. Um. The thing that the thing, pardon me, the thing that, that struck me about all of the books that I've read was that they are all well done, they were all well researched, and they all made sense. And that most of the people approaching the Kennedy assassination were appearing to be arguing that this or that group that they were advocating pulled off the assassination was the correct solution. And I took the view no, they're all involved at some level because the assassination is not just moving the the pieces on the board to dallas and and getting the assassins themselves there it's also the cover-up and the 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 management of the narrative after that so you've got three levels to it and the simple questions of who had the means who had the motive who had the opportunity leads to all these different groups the real interesting thing, once you do it that way and then chart who has the means, motive, and opportunity to handle a cover-up and to keep it going this long, that changes the nature of the groups involved. So in other words, 
yeah, the mafia probably was involved at some point. We know that. Jack Ruby's there to prove it. And Jack Ruby is also a, a confidential source for Richard Nixon and other people in the government. All right. So we know that there's a mafia connection. Right. Okay. And I'm giving just one example of many. Sure. But in terms of the cover-up to this day, that we cannot get complete full disclosure of the archives that they were supposed to have released by now. And when we do, by the way, Trump releases a batch of documents from the FBI that's talking about Hitler being alive and well in Argentina. You know, <laughs> what's that doing in a batch of Kennedy documents? Oh, yeah. You know, um, that makes you go, hmm. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, it, it, you know, it just boggles the imagination. But who's got that kind of power today? So in other words, whoever it was back then that is managing the cover-up and the management of the narrative, they're still operative today. And that changes the deepest levels of the assassination rather dramatically. Because I think by that point, it becomes clear that you're dealing with intelligence and not Castro's intelligence and not Nikita Khrushchev's intelligence. You're dealing with American intelligence. So, yeah, I, I view it as, as a real coalescence of interests. And because of that, um, I'm, not, I'm not concerned with explicating this or that group. And the other thing, I think, once you take that approach to uh, President Kennedy's murder, it becomes very clear that the murder itself was a, a, a component of a much wider coup d'etat. So viewed that way, the Kennedy assassination until now is one long arc of, of history. We're looking at the same people running things badly. And this is the ultimate denouement of, of an oligarchy that is, is out of control. Thank you, Woodrow Wilson. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's what happens. And, and Kennedy like Trump and like his nephew, uh, He's an outlier. He's a threat to that system. Absolutely. No, there's no question. We we had it. We, and uh, I, when people ask me who killed JF, well, who do you think killed JFK? I said, well, look, I, they didn't conduct a real investigation. They, right. they weren't supposed to. So, but whatever they did, they inadvertently proved it wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. So let's start. <laughs> you know you're yeah. being lied to. Okay? So it wasn't Oswald. There. So they're still. Selling and it wasn't a silly so magic. And it wasn't a silly no, magic bullet. <laughs> uh -uh. That dog don't hunt, you know. Yeah. It's just, yeah. You know, and the other thing, Don, that you and I probably both remember, and what really set me off, and you may remember this, is on. Uh, I think it was sixty-six or sixty-seven. Jim Garrison appeared on the Tonight Show. Remember that. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I remember my parents, again, they were playing cards with their friends, so I was up late at night watching Johnny Carson mm -hmm. interviewing Jim Garrison, and I thought, this guy is making a hell of a lot more sense yeah. than that 26-volume piece of you-know-what that the Warren Commission fogged on. And Johnny Carson attacked him, really. Yes, he did. And funny you should mention Jim Garrison because all this, my, my next book, which is already out there for pre-sale that I co-wrote with William Law, is oh. Pipe the Bimbo and Reb, uh, Dean Andrews, oh. Jim Garrison, and the Conspiracy to Kill JFK. And it's uh, 
it was inspired by my friendship with Dean Andrews III, who was my brother's best friend. Oh, and, I uh, got to get this. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 hang on, I'm writing this down. Dom. Okay. Pipe the bill going red. I was the editor. I was the editor. Okay. All right. Is is that out now? Yes, it's out for pre-sale. It won't be officially released until the 15th of November. It's right in time for the 16th anniversary. But basically, we're going to somebody's near an airport, near a place. Oh, know. it's uh, Blue Angel. It's 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 uh, Fleet Week here in San Francisco. Okay, uh. okay. I was going to say you do there, but uh, so it's it goes over the what I call the ground level conspirators, and it's it basically goes deeper into what Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone. You talked about kind of a consortium of interest. That's what he said. Yeah. You know, Mr. X says something in the air. A lot yeah. of people wanted him dead. But I I look at these people that, that, that Garrison did, as my friend John Barber said, he did solve the case to an extent yeah. because he found the people. Clay Shaw, we go over his his connections. He was connected to everybody and everything. Yeah. As Peter yeah. discovered, even to the point of, you know, at World War II, as a, I mean, just he was he was there in the middle. He was not a kindly friend. And he but he was the only one. I think that might have known what's going on. All these other people, yep. including Oswald, all of them were manipulated. They were all age. They probably were all told, hey, report back to us on a plot uh, and to, to kill the president and used against each other. So it's an interesting book. I, I, I was the first one to ever get a hold of Oswald's best friend in high school who also was murdered, I think. And his family thinks that I talked to wow. him. Interesting stuff like that. So it's uh it's uh, you know, for especially for the Kennedy assassination aficionado, you'll. Let you'll me learn. ask. Let me ask you, Don. Is this gonna is this gonna be uh, an ebook or is it gonna be available on, as a hard copy on Amazon? Or oh yeah, it, it, on Amazon right now the paperback is out. Uh, the Kindle isn't. I don't know why the publisher hadn't put the Kindle, but yeah, it'll definitely be an ebook. It's just the ebook isn't. Oh, out there I don't yet. want the ebook. I want the paperback. I, I yeah, don't the trust, paperback's I don't out there. <laughs> I don't yeah. trust ebooks as far as I. Okay, it is on Amazon. Okay, the paperbacks there, you. you can you can get it, but it's, well, it's, you, just it's a you just made a sale. You just made a sale. Well, thanks, but but it's your your books, right? I just wanted to mention that because we. But uh, oh, here I no I, uh, no I've I've got the reason I'm interested in this is, um, you know I I'm intensely curious about aspects of of Garrison's investigation concerning the church that he didn't know what to do with and when you mentioned dean andrews and that whole circle of people connected yes, with yes him i thought oh ding 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 <laughs> i gotta well, read you'll, that you'll be you'll but... be fascinated dean andrews the third you know this guy was a yeah and there are some coincidences and uh he came into <laughs> my life through my brother it was coincidence and uh, he was, he used to come to family gatherings for like, you know, 20 years. He was a part of, you know, of, a, of the group. And uh, right. I, I never was sure there was a book there, but uh, William talked me into it and uh, it, it made a lot of sense. We just kind of put all the other stuff together around it. And, uh, you know, it, obviously I, I, I should have at least one JF gas assassination book in me. So uh, we're doing but that. But the Deborah Wheeler, who, my friend, thank you, Deborah, for reading the Unreals. And I wish more of you would. And thanks for being Riley's biggest fan, my dog. I tell her about <laughs> you all the time. Uh, she says, she says, please ask Dr. Farrell who's what his father thought about who killed JFK. Oh, oh. <laughs> my my dad, uh, Deborah, was a. A Depression era Democrat. And he absolutely hated lyndon johnson yeah <laughs> and 
And my uh, dad too. All, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, all I can tell you, Deborah, is when, when the, when the Warren report was excerpted in our local newspaper and we were sitting at the dinner table, the reason I could look down and see the little cartoon of the magic bullet doing its gymnastics is because my father had been sitting at, he had finished his dinner and we're all kind of sitting around talking and he put his pipe in his mouth, packed his pipe, lit his pipe, slammed the, he'd been reading the paper and he slammed it down on the dinner table. And I, I, my father could cuss like a sailor sailor. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to repeat what he yeah, said. They all did in those days. <laughs> they all did in those days. <laughs> but, but what he said concerning Linda Johnson <laughs> wasn't very complimentary. <laughs> Um, they involve nooses on the Capitol and, and things like that. So, yeah, he, my dad was kind of of the opinion that, that the whole thing was an inside job and that Lyndon had something to do with it. Uh, and, and that, for that matter, Deborah, that was kind of the consensus in, in the whole family. None of us, yeah. my aunts, uncles, none of, none of us bought the Warren report. You know, I can't think of anybody who did. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -oh, Peter, do you have any more questions for him? Because I will close. Oh, just uh, I, I'd like Joseph just to uh, plug his uh, his latest book for everyone. My latest book? Yeah, your latest book. Uh, What's your latest uh, book? Joseph, you know, promoting the Peter. He's, I think Peter's frozen up there. We'll give it a second. But uh, what, what at this point, what do you? That's the okay, latest book. It's called up. It's called the Demon. Peter, you there? The... I'm here. Yeah, you were the one that froze up on my end, Don. But you're back. Oh, okay. Because you you guys froze up on me. Okay, I don't know what's going on. Okay, <laughs> it was it was a buffering thing. Yeah, it's called the Demon in the Acre. The subtitle is Angels, Demons, Plasmas, Patristics, and Pyramids. It's um, it's beyond any doubt the most speculative book I've written. It's a book I've I've wanted to write for several decades, but I was actually waiting for someone else to bite the bullet on a certain <laughs> topic so that I didn't have to. Um, which they did <laughs> conveniently enough. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of the follow-up to, to um, Giza Death Star Revisited. And did you have a final question, Peter? No, just I'm having a great time doing a show with two of my favorite authors. Yeah, and I don't mean good. to, you know, sit here and gush, but. Oh, oh go that's ahead. Great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I, and I think I think Chris Chris Buckin, he's talking about the church. David Ferry was associated. And there were a couple others too. Jack Martin and some of the. They were associated with it, uh, and kind of an, an deeper than Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, deeper than that, Don. Yeah. On page two fifty three of of my Kennedy book, there's a footnote that bears close reading. There, there are some characters hovering on the sidelines here that um, I will tell you about after the recording stops. Okay, but there and there's and there's <laughs> something to know because obviously David Ferry and lots and uh, Peter and I have talked about this and lots of people. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's so many of these people were gay. I oh mean, yeah, you know, there's there's a reason, yes. and, and it's 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 just it's too many not to have. I don't know what the significance is, but they clearly are. I mean, even people like uh, well, the General whole Walker, circle around was, yeah, the know, whole circle around Clay Shaw, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes. You know, the character that uh, Kevin Bacon plays, 
uh, in, in yes. Stone's movie. Yes. Um, there was a whole circle of something going on there. And quite frankly, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if in some way Jack Ruby wasn't connected to that. Yeah, well, Ruby, Ruby's, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's Rose Sheremy. I, I've had Rose Sheremy's right. uh, son, Michael Marcades, on my show. Right. And, uh, you know, Rose Sheremy was famous for saying when she warned about the JFK assassination, she was right. asked about Oswald. Did Oswald and Ruby know each other? Know each other. You know, they were they slept together. Yeah. So uh, that's what it was starting uh, But we could go on and on. And I would, uh, but go ahead, close however you want to, and give out any links or anything, anything you want to promote. Uh, well, if wonderful, if wonderful speaking with you. If if well, thank you for having me on, uh, guys. I appreciate it. Um, if people want to want to get my books, they can go to my website. It's uh, www.gizadeathstar.com. My books are all there. You can order them directly off the website. Um, you can order them from the publishers. You can order them from Amazon. My one request is that you order the hard copy books. I'm trying to get all the ebook platforms shut down because I've just had it with them. But um, they they can order the books directly off the website, and and they will come from uh, Amazon. Um, I should also mention that I do blog a lot on my website. I have a members area, a subscribers area to my website, which is behind a paywall, but we have a lot of fun behind the paywall, which is why it's behind the paywall. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they can, they can find all the books there. Um, and that's it, I guess. Well, that's great. Uh, Joseph P. Farrell, just the author of too many books to even recount. And just, and you can see this, we only scratched the surface. We'll have to have you back in, in two hours and come up with other things to discuss. I'm sure we can do a series of shows. And Peter Sikash, my friend, a uh, Hall of Fame researcher, and hopefully he's going to be writing his own book soon. And again, thanks to everybody in the chat room. Please, again, say prayers for Chris Graves. Send him your thoughts. Uh, I hope, hope to see him back in the chat room and Back to full strength soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to I Protest. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye-bye.